Now, friends, we have come today to the book of Isaiah. And I do trust that you have the notes and outlines on Isaiah. Those of you that are going through the Bible with us and are on our mailing list, you have already received the notes and outlines that we are using. And we would urge you, if you're not on that mailing list, you write in and ask for notes and outlines. We have a set for you and would like to send them to you without any cost to you whatsoever. Now, if you have your Bible handy, turn to Isaiah. We want to put out an introduction because we've come now to an altogether new section of Scripture, that which is called prophecy. And we'll be talking about the prophet and prophecy. Now, that does not mean that we've not had prophecy before. We've had it both in the Old Testament and the New. There is prophecy as far back as in the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And we'll find also, as we're coming now to these prophetic books, that there's history and that there is poetry and that there is law in the prophets also. But the primary message is that of a prophet. Now, the rest of the Old Testament that we'll be looking at, and we're going to look at all of it, of course, is concerned with prophecy. That is, every one of the writers from now on through the remainder of the Old Testament, he is a prophet of God. And we today have an artificial division of the prophets, of course, called major prophets and minor prophets. And all of the prophets were in the major league, as far as I'm concerned. I don't think any of them you can put back in the minors at all. But that is an artificial division, and it does prove helpful. And the division was made, of course, because of the fact of the size, the length of the book that they wrote, and not the content. Because actually, some of these minor prophets are like little atom bombs. They're small, but they're very potent indeed. Now, beginning with Isaiah here, and continuing on through the Old Testament, this is the prophetic portion of the Bible. Now, the predictive element will book large in this section. But the prophets actually were more than four talents. They were men raised up of God in a decadent day when both the priest and the king were no longer worthy channels through which the communications of God might flow. Now, these men not only spoke of events in the far-off future, but they also spoke of local events in the immediate future. They had to speak in this manner in order to qualify for this office under God according to the Mosaic Code. Now, the Lord had put down back in Deuteronomy the law for the priest and the law for the king and the law for the prophet. Now, the question is often raised, how did people in the day of the prophet, how did they know that the prophet was really speaking for God, that he was really foretelling the future, especially if the future was 
way beyond the lifetime of any of those that were then living. Well, God took care of that. And back in Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22, I left out this particular portion of the law concerning the prophet. Well, you listen to it. But the prophet, which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. Now, if thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? Now, that's a good question, you see. How do we know whether he's a false prophet or not? Well, when a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing fallen not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously. Thou shalt not be afraid of him. Now, a prophet would come along and make a statement, and we're going to see that here in Isaiah. He'd make a statement concerning the future, a way-off event. For instance, he made a statement concerning the destruction of Babylon, Isaiah did. Well, that's going to be quite a few years. It'll be beyond the lifetime of Isaiah. In fact, of the matter is, it's going to be beyond the time of Daniel. So how do you know whether Isaiah, if you lived in that day, how would you know whether he was a true prophet or not? Well, he would have to speak into some local situation. And we're going to find out that Isaiah did exactly that. You see, he not only spoke of events way down in the future. He spoke of the coming of Christ in both his first and second coming, by the way. And how do you know that that will take place? Well, he then would speak into a local situation. Now, if the local event didn't come to pass, just as the prophet predicted... He was, of course, labeled a false prophet, and he was treated that way. Actually, they would stone him. Now, you may be sure, therefore, that the message of the false prophet is not here in the canon of inspired Scripture. The prophetic books are filled with events that are local and already fulfilled. That's the reason that all of these prophets, that you will find that they have a local prophecy. They spoke into a local situation, and that came to pass. And by the way, a sharp distinction needs to be drawn between that which is fulfilled prophecy and that which is unfulfilled. When it was given, it was all unfulfilled. But a great deal of prophecy has been fulfilled. And it's a matter of record and a matter of history today. And a great deal has not been fulfilled, by the way. And we need to make a distinction between fulfilled and unfulfilled prophecy. And I think, very frankly, that one of the greatest evidences of the fact that these men were speaking the words of God is revealed in the hundreds of prophecies that have been fulfilled literally. Now, actually, man cannot guess the future. I find that the weatherman 
has difficulty in prognosticating the weather even for 24 hours ahead, although he has the advantage of all sorts of scientific, mechanical devices to assist him. The fact of the matter is no weatherman that you and I listen to so intently on the radio and actually believe he would never have survived in Israel. He'd been declared a false prophet and been stoned to death. And yet we think those people were gullible and that we are not today. I know that I was back east in a conference, and a friend of mine, a very fine doctor down in Louisville, Kentucky, why, he and I were going to play golf on a certain day. And we came in to breakfast at this conference that morning smiling because the prediction was that it was going to be a clear day and the sun would be out. Well, do you know that there were broken clouds, but we were just so sure we were going to have a good day. We even got ready and got golf clubs in this car, and we started out. Do you know what happened? I've never been in such a hard rain in my life as I was that day. We did well to get back to the conference grounds and get in the shelter before the flood came. Now, that weatherman would have been stoned to death in Israel. He'd never made it because he gave a false prophecy. Of course, he did the best he could with all the scientific gadgets that they have today. Now, with all of these that have been fulfilled, and let me illustrate this, it is said that there are over 300 prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ. I've never counted them, but I do know that there are a great many of them. Now, the law, and this is a mathematical law of compound probability, forbids man from consistently foretelling the future. Now, I'll admit that sometimes they guess, but we have several in our day, well, they think that they know the future and they make certain prophecies. And if you'll examine them, every now and then they hit one. And I think that if you guess enough why you'll hit something, they tell me that these slot machines up here at Las Vegas, if you pull a lever enough times, that finally you will hit the jackpot. But it takes a long time, and it's a guess, you see. So that actually... The law of compound probability means you're going to lose whether you pull a lever at a slot machine or whether you're attempting to prophesy for the future. You just don't make good in this. And this is what I mean. Now, suppose that today I make a prophecy and I say that tomorrow it's going to rain. Now, may I say to you, I have a 50-50 chance of being right. It's either going to rain or it's not going to rain. It'll do one or the other, that's for sure. So I have a 50% chance of being right. Now, suppose I make the statement, I'll add another uncertain element, and I say now, it will begin raining at 11 in the morning. Well, may I say to you, I have now reduced my chance of being right again another 50%. So now I have a 25% chance of being right. But I don't stop there. 
I say that it'll not only start at 11 o'clock, but it will stop at 3 o'clock. And now I've reduced my chance again in half, and that means I have a 12 and a half percent chance. Now, you keep doing that, friends, and have 300 prophecies that were all literally fulfilled. Do you think that I would be right? I wouldn't be right unless the Spirit of God had given me the information. No man can guess like that. And by the way, that is a fraction that is 193. And I understand that there's a hundred zeros that you put after that. You don't believe it, you work the problem out. I never have. I took somebody else's word for it. But it is a fraction that means you wouldn't have a ghost of a chance of being right at all. You just couldn't do it. Yet the Word of God has been accurate in that way. Now, the question sometimes arises, why did God give so many prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ? Well, I think the very logical and obvious answer would be because of the importance of the event. There's Lord Jesus Christ coming in the world. But may I say to you, there is another important reason, and that is God did not want them to miss him. God did not want them to have any excuse. They'd never be able to say that God did not hedge in his coming in such a way that they should not have missed it at all. And again, let me use a very homely illustration. Suppose that I'm invited to your town and I come in to the airport and you say to me, how will I know you? How will I recognize you? I went to Canada for a conference and a man was to meet me that never seen me before. And the suggestion was made by the director up there that I take my Bible out and walk through the airport holding the Bible up. Well, I'm confident of one thing. He'd have been able to recognize me because the day I arrived, there was nobody walking around holding a Bible in the air. But suppose that I come to your town and you say to me, how will I know or how will you know who I am? You've never seen me before. May I say that I write back and I say, well, now I'm coming to your town and I'll arrive at the airport on a certain flight at a certain time. And you'll know me because I'm going to have on a pair of green check trousers and a blue striped coat. I'll have on a big yellow polka dot necktie, and I will have on a pink shirt with large purple stripes in it. And I'll have one brown shoe on and one black shoe on. And I'll have white socks on. I'll be wearing a derby hat. I'll be holding in one hand a cage in which there is a parrot, and the other I will be leading a chain jaguar. When you arrived at the airport, do you think you would know me? Do you think you'd be able to pick me out of the crowd? May I say to you, friend, when Jesus came 1,900 years ago, those who had the Old Testament and knew the Old Testament should have been waiting there at the end for news 
of his birth because they had that much information. They had all the information that they needed. And when those wise men appeared yonder, and that was evidently after his birth, they should have at least been interested enough to hop a ride on the back of the camels and go down to Bethlehem and take a look for themselves. Oh, how tremendously important his coming was. And God had predicted all of these things concerning him. Now, we find here in Isaiah something that I think is tremendously interesting concerning them. All of the prophets were extremely nationalistic. They rebuked sin in high places as well as low. They warned the nation. They pleaded with a proud people to humble themselves and return to God. Fire and tears were mingled in their message. And they had one of doom and gloom, but they also saw the day of the Lord and the glory that was coming. All of them looked through the darkness to the dawn of a new day. And in the night of sin, they saw the light of a coming Savior and Sovereign. They saw the millennial kingdom coming in all of its fullness. Their message must be interpreted before an appreciation of the kingdom in the New Testament can be understood. The correct perspective of the kingdom must be gained through the eyes of the Old Testament prophets. Now, the prophets were not supermen. They were men of like passions as we are. But having spoken for God, their message is still the infallible and inspired word of God. And as Peter put it in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, "...of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified before the sufferings of Christ and the glory that was to follow. And then again in Second Peter, the first chapter, verse 15, I begin reading there, "...moreover I'll endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we make known unto you the power and coming." of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy." Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this verse, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved, by the Holy Ghost. It was Cowper that said, Sweet is the harp of prophecy, too sweet not to be wronged by a mere mortal touch. We are coming, friends, to a glorious section of the Word of God, prophecy. 
and in the Old Testament, why we will continue right to the very end in this section. Now I'd like to speak today in particular of Isaiah and of him, first of all, in his personal life as a prophet. Now, most of the prophets, they moved in an orbit of obscurity and anonymity. They did not project their personalities into the prophecy they proclaimed. I think Jeremiah and Hosea are the exceptions to this, and we'll see that when we get to them. But Isaiah gives us very little of a historical character concerning himself. Now, there are a few scant references to his life and ministry. In the very first verse here, we're going to find out the times in which his lot was cast during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, and Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, in Isaiah 6, he records his personal call and commission that was given to him. And in one sense, logically, this chapter should come first. But we're going to take it up as we have it. Now, in Isaiah 36 and 39, we have a historical section which records a portion of the ministry of Isaiah during the crisis when the Assyrian host encompassed Jerusalem. Now, there are a few personal sections, but Isaiah stands in the shadows as he points to another who is coming, the one who is the light of the world. Now, there are those that believe that Isaiah belonged to the royal family of David. And this certainly cannot be proven, but it is a tradition. And other scholars think that in Hebrews 11:37, when it speaks of some that were sown asunder for their faith, that Isaiah is the one that is mentioned. Now, this may or may not be true. I do not know. But the liberal critic has sown him asunder in forging the fake fabric of the Deutero-Isaiah hypothesis. And some even have gone so far as to fabricate a Trito-Isaiah. And there's not a scrap of documentary evidence beyond the skepticism of the destructive critic. They've cut Isaiah up like a railroad restaurant pie. But history presents only one Isaiah, not two, nor three, but just one. And a friend of mine who's made quite a study of the Dead Sea Scrolls tells me that Isaiah is the one that they have worked with probably more than any other part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there's a great section of Isaiah there. And at that time, there were no two Isaiahs. There was just one. So it's quite interesting that the Lord lets a little shepherd boy reach down in a clay pot in a cave, way down in the Qumran area of the Dead Sea, and take out a scroll and it confounds the critics. And I'm of the opinion we'll just let the Lord take care of them as we go along. And if you want to know how ridiculous it is, suppose a thousand years from today, there are a group of archaeologists, they dig down over here in Kansas, and they dig down in Washington, and they dig down over in Europe. And they say, you know, there were three Eisenhowers. There was a General Eisenhower who led a great victory as a military leader in the European theater. And then there was another Eisenhower by the name of Dwight Eisenhower 
He was president of the United States. He was elected in 1952 and 1956. And still there was another Eisenhower. He was an invalid and a victim of a heart attack and a serious operation of Iletus. And somebody said, well, that's the most ridiculous thing that I've ever heard. <laughs> well, when I hear them talk about three Isaiahs, I feel the same way about it. Now, in Isaiah the prophecy, we have here a striking similarity to the entire Bible. And if you just make a comparison, it's rather remarkable. In the Bible, we have 66 books. In Isaiah, we have 66 chapters. In the Old Testament, we have 39 books. In the New Testament, we have 27 books. In Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, you have the government of God, and the emphasis is upon law. And the last 27 chapters, we have the grace of God, and there the salvation of God. There are 66 direct quotations from Isaiah in the New Testament. Some have found 85, and allusions to Isaiah in the New Testament. Twenty of the 27 books of the New Testament quote from Isaiah. Twelve books of the New Testament have direct quotations. Isaiah is woven into the New Testament as a brightly colored thread is woven into a beautiful pattern. Isaiah is discernible and conspicuous in the New Testament. Isaiah is chiseled into the rock of the New Testament with the power tool of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah is often used to enforce and enlarge upon those passages that speak of Christ. Now, the New Testament presents the Lord Jesus Christ as its theme, and by the same token, Isaiah presents the Lord Jesus Christ as his theme. He's been called the fifth evangelist, and the book of Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel. Christ's virgin birth, as we saw last time, his character, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his second coming are all presented in Isaiah in clearness and in definity. The apostle Peter wrote a word, I think, that is especially applicable, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And in the prophecy of Isaiah, you have that. You have the sufferings of Christ and you have the glory that will follow. And you remember the Lord Jesus, when he sat down yonder in the synagogue in Nazareth, where did he turn? He turned to Isaiah, the 61st chapter, and read there. And in this book, we're going to find a great deal of fulfilled prophecy. That is, when it was given, it was in the future. It has since been fulfilled. And prophecy is the mold into which history is poured. And we find that's going to be true in this book as we get into it. It's a thrilling book. It's a very wonderful book. Now, as we come here to the first section and the first 35 chapters here have to do with judgment, the judgment of God. And we have here a historic interlude in chapters 36 through 39, 
And then we have salvation as the theme in chapters 40 to 66. Now you have in chapter 1 the solemn call to the universe to come into the courtroom of heaven to hear God's charge against the nation Israel. And if you listen to it, you will find out that it puts down the principles and the basis on which God judges nations. Now, God raises up nations and he puts them down. The kingdoms of this world today are Satan, but God overrules. And he has permitted great nations to come up and permitted Satan to use them. But when in God's program, the time comes to move them off the stage. He moves them off. And as you come down the highway of history, you'll find many along the way. Even his own people today are a testimony to the fact that God rules in the nations of the world and in the affairs of this world. Now, we want to note here in the first chapter, and by the way, I should pause and say this from this chapter... I have a message entitled, America Needs a Declaration of Dependence, based upon this chapter. And we'll be delighted as we start off Isaiah to say, for those who request it, we'll send you this book if we hear from you and you want to have part with us in this ministry. Our notes and outlines, you pay nothing for those, but we must request that you take care of the books because it's altogether separate from our radio ministry. But whatever you send in will be put in the radio program. So we trust we will hear from you. America needs a declaration of dependence. Now, I want you to notice the way that he begins here. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, if you have our book, Briefing the Bible, where we have notes and outlines of every book of the Bible, you will note that we have a chart in there of the kings of Israel and Judah, the ones that were good kings, the ones that were bad kings. Now, here in Judah, Isaiah... He became a leper because he intruded into the holy place, which even a king was not permitted to do. Isaiah was really a good king. His son Jotham, who followed him, was a good king. But Ahaz, the grandson of Isaiah and the son of Jotham, he's a bad one. He's a bad egg, let me tell you. And then Hezekiah was a good king, although he asked that his life be prolonged, it was, and I think probably that was a mistake because the bad things that took place, not that he did any bad things, but the things he did certainly worked out not for the good of the kingdom, but actually for the undoing of the kingdom. This is the time. Now, God begins this prophecy in a most majestic manner. He says, "'Hear, O heavens,' And give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children. They've rebelled against me. Now, God is calling the world, if you please, to come into the courtroom and become a spectator 
and listen to him as he tries his people. And that's quite interesting because if you go back to the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy, at verse 1, God at that time, when he was ready to put them in the land, he says, "'Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth.'" And then God put down the conditions on which he was putting them in that land. And actually, he'd given them the land, but their occupancy of it depended upon their obedience to him. And now, after 500 years, he says, "...I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me." They've rebelled against me. His charge is rebellion. And the condition on which they are to be in the land is obedience to God. And now they have disobeyed, they have rebelled against him. And according even to the Mosaic law, that when a man had a rebellious son, he was to be stoned to death. So the charge is a serious charge here that God brings against these people. Now, the reason that when the Lord gave that parable of the prodigal son... And it's probably one of the most familiar stories, and that of the Good Samaritan, of any that have ever been told. But the thing that made it such an exciting thing in Christ's day was the way that he handled it. He said that this son was not stoned to death. When he got home and asked for forgiveness, even before he finished his confession, why, the father had thrown his arms around the boy, kissed him, And the father forgave him. And instead of stripes, why, he had for him a wonderful feast for him. And this boy here was received. Now, here again, God is saying, I have nourished and brought up children. They've rebelled against me. Now, he goes on to make a very unusual statement. In fact, he breaks the tension of the courtroom by introducing a little humor. I hope you find humor in the Bible. If you do, it'll make it lots more interesting for you. And God has a sense of humor. I think that when we get in eternity and get past the time of sin on this earth, get past the program that God is working out and we're there in eternity, you know, I think we're sure going to have a good time. We're going to have many laughs. And it's going to be an hilarious situation, by the way. And it doesn't hurt as you go through today as Christians to have the right kind of humor. And God has put a lot of it in the Bible. At least I find a lot of it in the Bible. And I had a dear lady that was a member of my church. She shook a bony finger under my nose. Every time I'd find humor in the Bible, she'd make a trip down front. And she'd say to me, you're being irreverent to find humor in the Bible. Well, I didn't know about being irreverent. I didn't think I was, but I sure found humor. And I only wish she could. She's since gone on to be with the Lord. And I do hope that she's had a couple of good laughs, because she sure never had them down here. In fact, the matter is, she looked like, well, she acted like she was winged on a dill pickle. And she looked like she'd just eaten a green olive. But she never found humor in this life. In fact, I don't think she enjoyed the Christian life. God wants us to. Now, will you notice? God says, "...the ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, 
but Israel doth not know my people, doth not consider. Now, the ox knows his owner, and the ass, this little long-eared donkey, he knows his master's crib. Now, these two animals, friends, do not have a reputation of being very intelligent. In fact, their IQ is not very high. And you just don't find many of them around the ox. Well, you hear somebody say today the expression, he or she's dumb as an ox. Well, an ox must not be very smart. And then that little long-eared animal, you know, he has no reputation for being an intelligent creature. And you never saw one of them with a Ph.D. degree, I guess. Well, I'll have to back up. I have met a few that have a Ph.D. degree, by the way. But this little animal doesn't have very much of a reputation. But do you know that this little animal's got sense enough to know who feeds him? <laughs> the ox knows his owner. He knows who feeds him. And the little donkey knows his master's crib. When I was pastor in Texas, there was a vacant lot across from the church, and there was a very poor man. Never saw a man have as many patches on his overalls as he did. He'd bring a little donkey, a little burro, and he'd tether it in that vacant lot to eat the grass. And all the boys and girls, for that matter, in the neighborhood would go over and ride the little animal including a preacher, by the way. I'd go over there and get on his back. He paid no attention to any of us. But late in the afternoon, when the owner came for him, that old man come tottering along. That little donkey would prick up those long ears, and my, he knew his owner. He knew who was going to feed him that night. But you know there are a lot of people today, they don't know God feeds them. They do not recognize him at all. It's like the story that I've told you about the little boy that was going next door for his first trip away from home on his own. And he just couldn't wait to get over there. His mother had to hold him back. But at 5 o'clock, she dressed him, and he made a break for it. He went over there, and everything was new. And they sat down at the table. And these people where he visited, they were not Christians. But his home was a Christian home. He was accustomed to bowing his head, and somebody had returned thanks. So he just bowed his head as a matter of habit. But he noticed things were being passed, and he didn't want to miss a thing. So he opened up his eyes and looked, and he didn't have any inhibition. So finally he said, he says, don't you thank God here for your food? And they were a little embarrassed, and they said, no, we don't. He thought a minute. He said, you're just like my dog. You just start in. There are a lot of people like that today. Oh, there are multitudes of people just living like an animal. And my friend, God said that of his people. He says, you know, the ox knows his owner. They ask his master's crib. But my people, they do not know. And today we hear about man has descended from an animal. My friend, <laughs> who said he has? He acts like one today. In fact, animals are smarter. Maybe instead of we descended from an animal, maybe an animal descended from us and has evolved into something better than we are. Oh, my friend, man today drops pretty low. I think this was quite a sharp thing that the Lord said as he opens up court. He's called the whole world in. And he says now, this is my general charge. Now he's going to be specific. And he's going to offer his charge in a very specific way. 
In verse 4, will you listen? Ah, sinful nation. They're his people. A people laden with iniquity. And that word laden with iniquity throws a world of light upon that invitation that when the nation rejected him, that is the Lord Jesus, he gave this personal invitation. He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Laden with what? Well, laden with sin. A people laden with iniquity. A people laden. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll rest you. And that's the rest of redemption. Now he says here, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel under anger. They are gone away backward. Now, this is a tremendous opening because it reveals God in the courtroom of his universe. He's called all of his created intelligences to hear that what he's going to do is just and right. We see him now as the judge of all the earth, and he is the judge here of his own people, the nation that he called. And that to us is strange today because God seems out of character to be in the position of a judge. Because in the thinking of the world today, God's been removed from the throne of judgment. He's been divested of his authority. He's been robbed of his regal prerogatives. He's been shorn of his locks as the moral ruler of the universe. He's been bowed to the edge of the world and pushed over as excess baggage. I don't think I'm being irreverent when I say that modern teaching has given us a warped conception of God today. He's nothing more than a toothless old man with long whiskers sitting on the edge of a fleecy cloud with a rainbow around his shoulders. He is simple, senile, and sentimental. He's overwhelmed with mushy love and slops over on every side, dripping honey and tears. And he does not have enough courage or backbone to swat a fly or crush a grape. His proper place is in the corner by the fireplace, either to crochet or knit. Now, that's the world's conception of God, but it's not the Bible conception of him. God's going to judge this universe someday, and he judged his own people. And that ought to be a warning, not only to individuals, but to nations, that God still judges nations. Now, he has spelled out the charge here. And this charge is that they are in a backslidden condition. They have turned away from God, and they are a people laden with iniquity. Now, God is going to spell out in detail this charge that he's made against them. And this brings to mind the philosophy of human government that God operates on. He has a system of political economy. I must say it's not the world's system, but it's God's system. And the interesting thing is that the world doesn't seem to be running on man's 
theory of political economy, because nations rise and fall, and they fall because they follow their own political economy. And this nation of Israel was. Now, we saw that system given to us back in the book of Judges. We saw these people, they were serving God, being blessed of God. God prospered them, and then they began in their prosperity to turn away from God. And as they did, they turned finally to idolatry. They forgot God. In fact, they were in rebellion against Him. And then God delivered them into the hands of the enemy. Then they began to cry out to God for deliverance. Then they turned to God, and when they did, he delivered them and brought them back again to the place of blessing. Therefore, we have given in the book of Judges that which is followed all the way through Scripture, and history corroborates it, and that is that there are three steps in the downfall of any nation. There's, first of all, religious apostasy. Second... There is moral awfulness. And third, there is political anarchy. And a great many people don't pay any attention until we reach the place of political anarchy. And then they begin to cry out that the government should be changed and that there should be a new system adopted. Well, the problem is not in government. The problem was not in Jerusalem, in the palace, the problem was in the temple. And it all begins with spiritual apostasy. Now, God puts his hand down upon this nation. He didn't go and put his finger down on the king. He could have, and he did have a great deal to say about it. But here, that's not the place. And then he didn't put his finger down on the moral awfulness that there was in the nation. He could have. He put his finger down on that which was spiritual. Will you listen? He says, Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even under the head, there's no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises, putrefying sores, they've not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. There was moral awfulness, but that's not his charge. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence. And it's desolate as overthrown by strangers. That's verse 7. And here you see political anarchy. But God is just stating a fact. He's not bringing a charge here. But listen to him now. The daughter of Zion is left as a cottage and a vineyard, as a lodge and a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. In other words, if there hadn't been a faithful remnant, God would have destroyed the nation as he did Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's always been a remnant among those people that had been for God. There is a remnant today. And I don't think you find them back in Israel, although there's some lovely Christians back there but they really are not even big enough to be a remnant. But there is throughout the world. Now, listen to him. He's now calling again to hear the word of the Lord. This is verse 10. Ye rulers of Sodom, give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Now he's spelling it out. 
The whole problem was religious apostasy. They were coming and bringing sacrifices. He says that. I'm full of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of your fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks and of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? The problem was in the temple, you see. And it was a spiritual problem. Now, they went through the form and the ritual, but their heart was far from God, and it didn't affect their conduct. Now, friends, that today is the problem in the church. That's the problem among believers today. A great many of us have reached the place where we have a form of godliness, but we deny the power thereof. Now, he says to these people, bring no more vain oblations, that is, empty sacrifices. Incense is an abomination unto me, and the new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It's iniquity, even the solemn meeting. God says, even that which he gave becomes wrong when the heart is not in it and it doesn't affect the conduct. And when ye spread forth your hands, I'll hide mine eyes from you. He says, this is verse 15. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I'll not hear your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings. From before mine eyes cease to do evil. Learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. God says that you're nothing in the world but a bunch of phonies. You come into my presence as if you're real and genuine. You go through the sacrifices, but they become absolutely meaningless. Now, may I say to you, God now has a charge against them, and he's been spelling it out. And there's no question, no question at all about it. Now, the problem was there, which was spiritual or religious apostasy for these people. It had led to moral awfulness, and it had led to political anarchy in the nation. But their trouble was here. Now God has called them into court. He's proved his charge against them. Now what's he going to do? I tell you, the prisoner stands at the bar waiting for the sentence of judgment. And God now could move in and judge them. But will you listen to him? Even at this late moment, God says to them, Settle your case out of court. God says, don't go into court with me because you're going to lose. You're bound to lose. And he says, now, I have something for you. And this is amazing. You can't believe your ears when you hear this. Isaiah 1.18, I'm reading. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they'll be as wool. God says to them, set any case out of court. And you remember that was the thing that he said to his people, the Lord Jesus did. He says, agree with your adversary in the way. Don't wait till he takes you into court. God says, settle your case out of court. And God says, I have a secret formula. I have a private prescription, and it'll take out sin. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. They'll be red like crimson. They should be as wool. What is that? That's the blood of Christ. 
the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, just keeps on cleansing us from all sin. And God says, agree with your adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him. And God says, I have a charge against you, but I can take my divine alchemy. And you want to know where you find that? In the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, when you see the crucified Christ. Now, may I say to you that this is God's charge against his people. And this is the basis on which now he's giving them an opportunity to turn to him. And if they will turn to him, he'll preserve the nation. And he's going to give them now almost a hundred years. And then they don't turn to him. They don't change their ways. Then he'll send them into captivity. Now, that's the interpretation of this. Now, it has an application. Here's a good example of interpretation and application. I have a little book, and the title of the little book is, America Needs a Declaration of Dependence. It's based on this passage of Scripture. Now, we have today, I think, the same thing that you have here. You have, first of all, in this country, political anarchy. I don't think there's any question about that. I think it's obvious by now, friends, that men cannot solve the problems, not only this nation and certainly not of the world, and we want to solve the problems of the world. But we have seen that this is the way that a nation goes down. This is the way this nation did. It's the way that Rome went down and all other nations. Gibbon, he gives five reasons for the decline of the Roman Empire. Five steps downward. Will you listen to them? He says, first, the undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home, which is the basis of human society. Second, higher and higher taxes, the spending of public money for free bread and circuses for the populace. Third, the mad craze for pleasure, sports becoming every year more exciting, more brutal, more immoral. Fourth, the building of great armaments, when the great enemy was within the decay of individual responsibility. And fifth, the decay of religion fading into mere form, losing touch with life, losing power to guide the people. Now, if you go through this, you'll see the three steps downward. First of all, there is spiritual apostasy. Second, moral awfulness. And third, political anarchy. It was Clinton Rosita who was professor of American institutions at Cornell, who said, speaking of our nation, in our youth, we had a profound sense of national purpose which we lost over the years of our rise to glory. James Reston in the Wall Street Journal, and this was some time ago, made this statement. He made a distinction between the statements of public men in Washington, what they say in public and what they say in private. He says in public they talk about how optimistic and wonderful the future is, but the private conversations of thoughtful men here in Washington are quite different. For the first time since the war, one begins to hear of doubts that mortal men are capable of solving or even controlling the political, social, and economic problems life has placed before them. Now, friends, that was several years ago. Where are we today? Now, as America 
is being looked at today. I'm not just giving you the viewpoint of a wild-eyed fundamental preacher, for that's what I am, but I'm not wild-eyed, I hope. Dr. Seagrave Singer, he's professor of history in Salisbury, North Carolina. He says the American dream is vanishing in the midst of terrifying realities and visible signs of decadence in our contemporary society. You go back in our political history, and you can see today that there is this deterioration. But I don't think God would put his finger down on Washington. What about moral awfulness? Well, I could bore you with a great many statistics in this connection, but all you have to do is read the paper today. And way back in 1952, and this has been going on some time, they gave these alarming statistics. At that time, there were 15 million sex magazines that were read monthly by a third of the nation. What about it today? Three times as many criminals as college students. How about that today? And many of the college students have turned criminal. One million girls infected with social disease. And I understand that one out of four that graduate from high school in Southern California are infected with it today. We've come a long way since these days, and these were terrible. 100,000 girls enter white slavery each year. One million babes born in illegitimacy yearly. Two out of three marriages end in divorce. And now in Southern California, the divorces equal the marriages. Forty-five suicides every day. One murder every 40 minutes. Now I think it's 40 seconds. One major crime every 18 seconds. 100,000 unapprehended murderers walk the street. That was in 52. 21-year-olds represent the largest criminal group. That was in 52, but today it's the 18-year-old group. And I tell you that there has been that step down in moral awfulness. But I don't really think God would put the finger there. Move on down to spiritual apostasy. What about that today? The very interesting thing is Dr. Walter Tunks of the University of Akron made this statement. In the last 6,000 years, there have been 21 civilizations, and every one of them has gone on the rocks precisely at the point where they let God go. And the Wall Street Journal had an editorial during the time of the Depression, and this is amazing coming out of that journal. What America needs today is not government controls, industrial expansion, or a bumper corn crop. America needs to return to the day when Grandpa took the team out of the field in the early afternoon on Wednesday in order to hitch them to the old spring wagon into which Grandma put all the children after she washed their faces shining clean, and they drove off to prayer meeting in the little white church at the crossroads underneath the oak trees where everyone believed the Bible. May I say to you, friends, we've come a long ways. Dr. Albert Heimer, the professor of history at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, said the United States of America in the past 50 years has been dominated to a large extent by persons who do not understand the spiritual heritage bequeathed by their own ancestors. And Dr. Machen said... America's coasting downhill on a godless ancestry, and God pity America. Friends, we've hit the bottom of the hill. That's where we are today. But God is saying to us today, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, 
They shall be white as snow, though they be red like crimson. They shall be as wool. Today, there's a way out for America. But if America goes like other nations, and we're moving in that direction, our time is limited as a great nation, by the way. There is a way out. Philosophy says, think your way out. Indulgence says, drink your way out. Politics says, spend your way out. Liberalism says, legislate your way out. Science says, invent your way out. Industry says, work your way out. And labor says, strike your way out. And fascism says, bluff your way out. And militarism says, fight your way out. The Bible says, pray your way out. And the Lord Jesus said, I am the way out. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And I'm the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. That's the only hope of America today, friend. It's the only hope of our country today. And there's a place where people need to turn to God today. It's in Bible-believing churches. It'll have to begin there. And if it doesn't begin there, I don't know whether it's going to begin anywhere today. Now, the Lord continues on here gently and yet with a warning in this chapter. He says, "...if ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it." Now, those two aspects are in Isaiah. We have the government of God, and we have the grace of God. Emphasize. And the first section has to do with the government of God. Now, during the remainder of this chapter, why God is attempting to woo them back to himself, but also he's giving them the warning. And he says, verse 24, "...therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will rid myself of mine adversaries, and avenge myself of mine enemies." And I will turn my hand upon thee, and thoroughly purge away thy dross, and take away all thy tin. And I will restore thy judges as at the first. And he said, Afterward thou shalt be called a city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice, and her converts with righteousness. But he goes on to say, And the destruction of the transgressors. And of the sinners shall be together, and they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. You see, there's the warning there also. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks which ye have desired, and ye shall be confounded for the gardens that ye have chosen. Now, that has to do with idolatry. The idols were put under the oak trees, and around them a garden was planted. He says, For ye shall be as an oak whose leaf fadeth and as a garden that hath no water, and the strong shall be as a wick, and the maker of it as a spark, and they shall both burn together, and none shall quench them. We feel like today that God has been misrepresented in the sense that he loses his temper, and that he breaks forth in judgment and flails away upon his people. That's never the picture. The picture is that your sin is like a wick. And when you continue in sin, 
Why, the judgment comes of itself. That sin brings upon itself that judgment. And you remember the Lord Jesus made the statement in his day that the spark and the fire would come and destroy. It naturally follows. If you're going to put the spark of sin, the fire will follow. Or be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Now we come to chapter 2, and we have here a prophecy concerning the last days and the kingdom and the great tribulation period. And we begin in chapter 2 and go through chapter 5, and that constitutes actually one prophecy. That means that you have in this section here two three, four, and five, in four chapters, we have one great prophecy. And it concerns the nation Israel in the last days. And I'd like for you to notice something here that's very important. He says that it concerns Judah and Jerusalem. And I think he's including, as he makes it clear as we move on down, that he is speaking of all of the twelve tribes of Israel. God thought of them as one, and he intends for all twelve tribes to be brought back together again. And so what you have here is a prophecy concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And we're not talking about the church. There's no way in the world of making this applicable to the church. To begin with, Paul says that the church was a great mystery, you remember. And now that it's being revealed that God today is bringing a message to the world through the church, but the church is to be removed from the world. And this looks beyond the time of the church and looks to the day when God will begin to move in a new way. And that is the great tribulation period, and that will be the time that he sets up his kingdom at the end of the great tribulation period. Now, Paul makes that clear over in Romans 16, verse 25. He says, "...now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery." which was kept secret since the world began. Now, if Isaiah knew about it, then it was not new for the apostles and the early church and for the church today. It's not something new, but it actually is something that was back in the Old Testament. But I trust that we will use enough common sense in the prophets now to understand that when he speaks of Judah and Israel and Jerusalem that he happens to be talking about these literal places. And if he's going to use figures of speech, which he will, he'll make it perfectly clear, the Scripture will, that these are figures of speech. And so I think we ought to understand that very well. Now we can add something else to it. In verse 2, he says, "...now it shall come to pass..." In the last days. Now, don't again say that these are the last days of the church. The last days of the church pertain to the time of a spiritual apostasy. 
Paul makes that very clear when he's writing to a young preacher in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. Now the latter times of the church and here the last days of Israel are not identical. They're not contemporary. They are not synonymous. They overlap, but certainly they do not refer to the same period of time. And it's important to see that. Now, the last days begin with the great tribulation period. The Lord Jesus Christ makes that very clear when they ask him, when shall these things be, the destruction of Jerusalem? He reached down and put his finger down on the last days and called it the great tribulation period. Now, the great tribulation period ends with the coming of Christ and the setting up of his kingdom. And it shall come to pass now in the last days. We're in a period in this area here from chapter 2 through chapter 5 that deals with the great tribulation period and the kingdom that is to be set up on this earth. Now it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Now, that's very important to see. The last days now and the mountain. Now, in the last days, we want to make it very clear again that we're speaking of a day that is coming in the future. And it pertains to the nation Israel after the church is removed. Now, a mountain in Scripture means a kingdom or an authority, or a rule. Now, Daniel makes that clear in his prophecy. In Daniel 2.35, I'll not turn to that, but he makes it clear. And in Revelation 17.9, Revelation 13.1, that what we're speaking of now is a kingdom, if you please, an authority. Now, it shall come to pass in the last days that the kingdom of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, that is, above all the kingdoms of this earth. Now, that's the thing that we're told, that the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he'll be king of kings and lord of lords. Now, we're looking to that. One of the reasons that the little nation of Israel is in such a hot spot today, that is the most sensitive piece of real estate. Because that's the very spot God has chosen, which will be the political center and the religious center of this world during the kingdom. He makes that very clear here. And many nations, not many, but all nations shall flow unto it. Now we are told, and many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the kingdom of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Both government and religion will center in Jerusalem. And the Lord Jesus, we're told, is to sit on the throne of David. 
Now, that was made very clear even in the New Testament that the Lord Jesus will sit upon the throne of David. Now, we are told here, "...and he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people." And now, the period of the reign of Christ on the earth in the millennium is a period of judgment. It's another trial period for mankind. And there will be a great many judged during that period. And, of course, multitudes will be saved during that period. Now he says, verse 4, "...and he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more." Now, this is a verse of Scripture, and it's very clear that it's only during the kingdom that they'll be able to beat their swords into plowshares. In fact, Joel makes it very clear that at the time of the Great Tribulation, that'll be reversed. They are going to beat plowshares into swords. And by the way, we're living in that period today. This idea of disarming a nation and disarming individuals is, to my judgment, contrary to the Word of God. The Lord Jesus said, "...a strong man armed keepeth his house." You want to have peace? You're going to have to have law and order. Now, you may not like that expression, but you're going to have to have it. You're going to have peace and safety in this world today. And long as you and I are living in a big, bad world, it's well that a strong man arm keepeth his house. Now, this is a prophecy that will be fulfilled when the Lord Jesus is reigning on this earth. And when he's reigning in Jerusalem... You'll be able to take the locks off your doors. You'll be able to walk the streets at night in safety. And you'll not be drafted. There'll be war no more. And you can beat your swords into plowshares. And in that day, you won't need to get rid of the guns because the Lord Jesus is going to get rid of them. won't be any need for them whatsoever. This is the kingdom that he's going to establish on this earth. He is the Prince of Peace. Now, it's almost futile today. It's almost nonsensical. It's asinine today for any man. It doesn't make any difference about what party he belongs to or what nation he comes from when he promises that there will be peace on the earth and that men can make peace. Someone has said that the United Nations founded to bring peace on earth is the greatest place to carry on a battle. And it is proven how impotent it is that it cannot bring peace to the earth. It only has increased dictatorship upon the earth. And we do not have peace today. I'm not entering into any political argument. What I'm trying to say is that if you're a child of God and you get your thinking cap on and begin to think God thoughts after him, you'll find out that you're living in a big, bad, evil world. And if you think that we're living in a world when you're going to have the brotherhood of man and all that type of thing, absolutely that you are entirely wrong because man is not going to be able to bring peace on this earth 
man is not even capable of bringing peace on this earth. And that will not come as long as sin is in the heart of man and man with overweening ambition want to rule over other people. That is today actually a horrible thing of one man ruling over man, wanting to be the one at the top. My friend, I say to you that that's the thing that brings about wars. James says that. Now he says, O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now in view of the future that this is coming, then today we should walk in the light of the Lord. This is the only way of peace. And when you leave God out, you'll never have peace on the earth. Now he goes on to say, Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob, because they be replenished from the east and are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they please themselves in the children of strangers. Their land also is full of silver and gold, neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, neither is there any end of their chariots. Their land also is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. And the mean man boweth down, and the great man humbleth himself. Therefore forgive them not. Enter into the rock, hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. Now he goes on to say, The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of man shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every one that is proud and lofty, and upon every one that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. God intends to bring down proud man, proud man that thinks he can rule himself and rule the world today and leave God out. And upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, I think he's speaking here of the pride of man. And then he says, And upon all the high mountains and upon all the hills that are lifted up. This is actually upon society and government here. And upon every high tower and upon every fenced city, the military is to be judged. And upon all the ships of Tarshish and upon all pleasant pictures, commerce and art will be judged. And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of man shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. All the pomp and pride of man, the pomp and ceremony, all of that is to be put down, and the idols shall be utterly abolished. And he's going to get rid of all a false religion. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord. Now, John in the book of Revelation says that when the Lord comes, that's what man will do in that day. You and I are living in a world today that's governed and is thinking. And all you get on TV is nothing in the world but that which has to do with political economy and government and commerce and art and the pomp and pride of man and the religion of man, if you please. 
All of that is to be brought low, and the Lord Jesus Christ is to be exalted on this earth. He has not given his place today in government, or in society, or in business, or in art, or in the pomp and ceremony of the world, and even in the religion of the world. He has left out today. My friend, he's coming someday, and when he comes, they're going to all make for the caves of the earth. Now, I don't know whether man is ever a caveman or not, but he's sure going to be one in the future. He's going to make it back to the cave. In that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, and he'll go into the clefts of the rock. And now his message is, Cease ye from man, that's verse 22, whose breath is in his nose, for wherein he's to be accounted of. Don't put your confidence in man. Did you know you and I exhale, but we don't know whether we're going to inhale the next breath? That's all man is today. Just a little breath. He messes one breath, and he's through. He's out of the picture. And multitudes today, heart trouble hits them just in a moment, and they disappear from the earth's scenes. Don't put your confidence in man. Put your confidence in Jesus Christ today.